You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast. My name's David Tennant, and for the next 60 minutes, I'm going to be burping in the middle of sentences so that you don't have to. Sanity is going to be restored to the Blue Box podcast. I don't think so. Hi, you're the doc. I am. I'm JR. I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. I hesitate to say we have a special guest on tonight's show, but he's already demonstrated just exactly in what fashion he's hoping to be special. Um... Tonight we'll be playing Blue Box Bingo. Uh, you will score a point every time Lee describes something as beautiful. Right. Every time I say, and the point is, every time Doc talks about crying in Doctor Who, oh, and every time passed. Simon affects a slightly patronising tone of voice, and if all four of those things, if all four of those things should occur during tonight's episode. That's house, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> if we get a point for whenever you uh, adopt a slightly patronising tone of voice, Chia, we can all go home now. <laughs> um, yeah, fair enough. I feel absolved. Um, like the crack of a I, I should point out that tonight will be the first instance of you having heard our new theme tune. Mm. Oh, what do we think of that, boys? I think it sounds brilliant. Awesome. Simon? I'll let you know when I've heard it. Oh, really? You're joking. What about all those podcasts I recorded ahead of time that have got it on? Oh, is those ones. <laughs> oh, yes. No, it's great. No, that, if it's the one I think it is, yes. Somewhere, Simon, a game is taking place and you're clearly not keeping up with it. <laughs> yes, it's, it's by Richard Judge. And it was an entry for our uh, Blue Box podcast theme tune competition from last year. It will be on the podcast for the next three months. And if anybody in the meantime thinks they can do better, please feel free to try. You can send your uh, contributions to the Blue Box Podcast, not the Blue Box Podcast, to blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Now, Doc, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since the last time you were on the podcast, which is when you were on with Al and the Rev. What happened after? I was, I was betrayed. <laughs> what do you mean I was you were betrayed? betrayed? Switched on the Blue Box pod, pod, podcast one night to hear my podcasting colleagues guesting there without my knowledge. I was appalled. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was really asking you to tell us about the Diddly Dumb. I know. And I was, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, well, we... but as soon as you, but as soon as you messed it up, we'll just move straight on. <laughs> Tonight's <laughs> podcast is oh oh go on then, Doc. Tell us about the Diddly Dum podcast. Um, myself, um, the Reverend Captain Holoporo, and Al No, uh, 
frequent emailers to the Blue Box podcast down the years, uh, appeared on an episode in January, I think, after which JR browbeat us into setting up a podcast of our own. Uh, and we've long suspected that he was trying to take up all our spare time, that we so we had no more time to write, write him emails, uh, which I think has proved quite successful, really. Uh, and we've seen ourselves as um, uh, originally as the child of the Blue Box podcast, but the child that eventually um, one day w- walks into the room and realizes he's taller than his father. Oh shut up! <laughs> so the truth is, prior stalker. to prior to that round rabbit episode of the Blue Box podcast, our episodes were lasting an average of an hour and forty two minutes. But since you three have stopped emailing in, we're down to an hour and thirty four. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I've worked this out, guys. Tonight we are. Oh no! Before we go into it, I've got an email here from Ian Martin. That's. Oh, no, we've got no Mark here, so we're not going to have any silly jokes about his name. Uh, I wasn't going to say anything. Okay. Ian Martin says, I am loving Dominic Glynn's remix EP. Do, do you three all know what this is? Is that uh, Variations on a Theme one? No? Or is it no, a no, 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 no. That was, that was ancient Simon. Oh, right. No, this I didn't know he dug it up or something. No, no, no. This is new. He's... Yeah, he... Was it at Gallifrey One? It was at one of the conventions. He did a sort of live remix of his theme tune from the TV series. Yeah, you know, mm. several minutes long, like an extended version, like a sort of modern remix, using lots of the same elements. And now it's been released. I think there were three or four different versions of it on the EP. Mm. But you can get it okay. on like iTunes and stuff. I guess you'd just look mm. for Dominic Glynn Doctor Who. Anyway, Ian carries on and says, I keep busting moves to the Doctor Who theme as I haven't since I was a tiny kid when his theme was used on season 23. Each time I play it, sooner or later, I find myself fondly recalling the crap L7 robot or suffering anew at Perry's terrible death or her subsequent marriage to Carl Drogo, the fearsome sight of the clunge-faced vervoids, or the sheer bloody brilliance of Michael <laughs> Jaston as the Veilyard. Was that rude? I've not yeah, heard that. that really the best rude. description ever. If you watch the Inbetweeners, <laughs> yes. Okay, I've not seen the Inbetweeners, so I wasn't aware of how rude that was before I said it. So I apologise oh, to I anybody I may have offended by reading Ian Martin's email, which is where Do that you know expression what? was that, used. Yeah, before we start recording... Doc and JR were talking about the West Wing, so that's their level, and you've just caught me talking about in between us, which is my level. And I just oh, laughed. There you go. And I just laughed at the word clunge. That's my level. Yeah, I think you're reaching above yourself there, Lee. <laughs> Very much enjoyed your last couple of shows, Ian says. I have now recovered a lost memory, the first story I can remember catching on TV, and admittedly shaky, cloudy image at least was in fact full circle. I am hugely tempted to buy season 18, but I guess we've only got a month or two until the arrival of PCAP in series 8, and I can wait. I am a grown-up now, after all. Well, that was Ian Martin. I don't think he should wait to buy season 18. I think he should just not buy it altogether. Sorry? No, you shouldn't wait. Just go and get it. Just kidding. He should certainly buy the E-Space trilogy. I can't believe that there are people around young enough to only have... um encountered Doctor Who first at Full Circle. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Justice. <laughs> Got another bone. Well, of course, <laughs> your first memory of Doctor Who, um, Doc, was when your uncle took you into the BBC so you could attend the meetings where they were arranging what the series was going to be back in 1962. Am I not wrong? Oh, Uncle Sidney. Lovely guy. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, tonight we have the second half of the Series 1 podcast where we will be... Yeah, well, we would be looking at the five stories that our listeners voted their favourites amongst the sort of Christopher Eccleston series. So, in fifth place, by one point, fourth and fifth, so close. But in fifth place, by one point, of the five stories we have left... Well, uh, shouldn't we he... reiterate the, the bottom five first? Well, like a catch don't, up. We, don't, we don't usually do that, Simon. We've oh. never done it before. Could do, and we could play the top of the pops thing. Um, what the Led Zeppelin version? <laughs> Off you go, Jay. <laughs> yeah, go on, keep it up then. Add in, Doc. I was And at number ten, we have from Russell T Davis, the long game. At number nine, also from Russell T Davis, Aliens of London. At number eight this week, Boomtown, also from the pen of Russell T. Davis. And at number seven, The End of the World by Russell T. Davis. And finally this week, in sixth place, we have The Unquiet Dead by Russell T. Davis. Oh, that's uh, not entirely coincidental, is it? End of the World well, the at number seven. <laughs> what sort of listeners do you, uh, do you attract? Well, do you know what? Yes, End of the World might be in seventh place, but the six stories above it are even That's true. better That's true. than the End of the World. So what can you say? Yeah, okay. We heard your opinions on it last week, Simon. We've, we oh. don't really want your opinions on this week's stories, let alone reiterating <laughs> last week's. In fifth place, everybody. Ooh, <laughs> I guess. My guess is Rose. Uh, Simon, would you like to guess? I think the doc's probably right. Yeah, I was going to guess. Lee, I think it would. Yeah, it would balance out in the votes, wouldn't it? I I don't oh. think it should be there. I, I think it will be Rose. Mm. Well, I'll give you a clue, guys. You're not a million miles away. Rose is in the episode that's at number five, which is <laughs> Father's Day. Oh, oh really? Oh. Yeah. But then again, you know, like I said, only because the four stories above it are even better. Um, Actually, I, I guess if we, yeah, if we're going to play blue box bingo, then Doc, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you think about Father's Day? <laughs> um, <laughs> on the face of it, it's as dull as anything. Uh, I think the I'm not that uh, keen on the the look of it. It seems all very uh, flat. And unimaginative visually, but then it was the eighties, I suppose. So it, might, it might be quite accurate. Um, <laughs> <coughs> I think. I think initially when I watched this, I seem to remember uh, briefly disliking Rose again for it. And how selfish can you be? He's told mm. you, you know, you can't. You, you can only do this once. You shouldn't be selfish like this. 
I don't know if she originally. Uh, do you do we think that she originally when he said did I tell you did I mention it also travels in time that she was motivated by that or do you think she just thought about it later on, the chance of me of seeing yeah, her death. Do you know that's funny, isn't oh, yeah. it? Because on the face of it, in that episode when he says it almost travels in time, it's almost like a light bulb goes off in her head yeah. and she says, "Oh yes, of course." But she runs to the TARDIS so quick, yes, she can't be thinking to herself, true. oh, I can save my father. She doesn't have time to think that, does she? So, I don't know. Could be a mixture. You just, mm, I, you've got to yeah. just say, if somebody says they've got a spaceship, you think to yourself, right, that means I'll be spending months, if not years, in the blackness of space with this guy who's probably a bit of an old pervert. <laughs> But if he says he's got a time machine, you're thinking, oh, yeah, I've seen time travel movies. I might bump into Michael J. Fox. That was my, that, Those were my initial thoughts when I was invited onto the Blue Box podcast. Uh, well, they might meet Michael J. Fox. I know it's probably be um, run by an old pervert, but I might get to meet interesting people. Um, I, you know, I think with Father's Day, what I like about Father's Day is I love the bit towards the beginning where he, I love it when the, when the doctor really sort of tears a strip out of humanity stupid, stupid damned apes that sort of thing, give me a key, I want it back I love things like that and then Lee, oh, Lee touched that fabulous scene which has to be a highlight of season one where he, uh, he opens the TARDIS and it's just oh, looking yeah, there yeah. oh wow like that, that, is that a was shock real there, hairs yeah, real hairs down the back of the spine moment is that sort that of was. thing that I, I bet these days, you know with all the trailers we get these days, I bet that sort of thing where they'd They'd show that scene in the trailer and completely ruin it. Yeah. You know what I mean, I mean that sort of thing where you really need to be, whoa, what's happened, isn't it? And of course, these days, Stephen Moffat does that kind of thing so often, it's almost second nature. Mm. You don't even notice it anymore. But back then, that was a real shock. It was. And you're right about them leaving it out. Um, and because they did start doing kind of adverts for the next one coming up, is that is that right? If I remember, did they do like a little advert at the end? Yes, of it was. It was next week. Episode? Every well, yeah, they, 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 they first did it. Used to do it before the credits, didn't they? And then they started doing it after, after everyone complained That's about right. whichever one it was. Well, they would do. Yeah, they did it before the credits if it was a single part story, and they do it after the credits if it was the second half of a two parter. Mm, that's right, yeah. But you're right, leaving that as a surprise was <clears throat> absolute fantastic. It's genius. I really like Pete. Uh, oh, I thought, yeah. I thought he was great. Mm. Um, I've, um, I wasn't that interested in a lot of it. I mean, I must say, people go on about the, um, you know, saying, oh, an ordinary person on the corner is the most important thing in the universe. That sort of thing doesn't impress me, really. Bores me, that sort of thing. No, and I, I, I live surrounded by ordinary people. I don't know that sort of thing. But I think the, the best bit of all, all has to be where she says, Pete says to her, who am I? And she says, you're my daddy. Where oh, yeah. I cried. Oh. I cried. And normally you'd think, there you well, go. that, that comes in anywhere, you'd think, wouldn't you? You want to stick your fingers down your throat and vomit. That sort of thing. But actually, anyway, and that's, that's amazing writing that. I think, uh, yeah. you know, it isn't necessarily the writing because you're my daddy isn't a particularly brilliant line, but it must be a it must be a really good characterization somewhere along the line. We well, have so really... all credit to um, Billy Piper mm. for delivering it like that. It is amazing. It's that point where you think, yeah, she's the person for the job. We'd had a bit of emotion up until that point, and a little bit uh, in places, 
But this was this kicked it out of the park, really, didn't it? I mean, I think you're right there, Mr. Doc. Um, I was choking back a tear. Um, there's the, I haven't actually cried at Doctor Who properly, but I was kind of <laughs> like that, thinking, this is gorgeous. This is just what Doctor Who should be. is very emotional. But it was only that bit when he says about the daddy that got me. The rest of the episode I thought was crap to begin with, but I have absolutely grown to love it. Uh, the more I watch it, the better it becomes. It's a bit of a funny one, really. I think the ending... I think the last five or ten minutes makes up for a lot of the rest of it, which isn't which isn't always brilliant, let's be honest. Mm. And the doc's right. The way it's shot, it does look very flat, a little bit like a... Well, we we discussed this in the week, actually, didn't we, Doc? Yeah. We said it looks a bit like a wedding, somebody's wedding video. Oh, yes, some of the, yeah. Some of the photography on it is just kind of a bit. F- I know you, you're not you're not impressed with the direction, are you? No, Joe Ahern. He uses. Well, we talked about this, so we might as well talk about it now. He uses a lot of long lenses. And do any of you three know about lenses and things like that? Cameras. A little bit. Teachers. Cinematography. Not really. If you use long lenses, you have to put the camera quite a distance away from the action because the point of using a long lens is that it. Um, distances the focus between objects so that is when you see a shot where the actor's in really sharp relief and the background is completely out of focus that's generally a long lens that's what a long lens does Mm. but when you use a long lens you can't move the camera because you're so far away or if you do move the camera it's almost imperceptible because you'd have to move the camera a huge distance just to have these sort of people in the distance of the shot you know, changing their location in the shot. So when you use long lenses like that, it tends to become rather static. It's a lot of very still shots. When you're doing action-adventure, you can't use long lenses like that because you just can't keep the dynamics up. Hmm. As a Father's Day, because he uses long lenses all the way through it, it all feels a bit static. And there's no... The church, it's like, if you're going to set it in a church and it's under attack from alien beings and you're trapped inside the church, you want something really gothic it's and gloomy church, and spooky. It? Yeah, it's a, mm. yeah, it's just kind of a, it's just kind of a church that's kind of nicely lit and everybody's just sitting mm. around, really. We, we've been to that church, me and Simon, mm. and uh, it's up for sale. Oh, if really? you want to buy it and make it gloomy. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I, I realised I said um, that a Doctor Who episode was crap about three minutes ago. And actually, um, that was a knee-jerk reaction, I think, to the soap opera element that I had at the time. Because it came back and I thought, oh yeah, I like that. I don't mind this. This is quite good. And then it got a bit kind of, you know, with um, uh, Mickey and the, all the kind of soapy elements. And I was thinking, mm, I'm not sure I like this. And so when Father's Day came, that's the reason why I was like... Nah, I don't want to go here. I want to go out in space. I want to enjoy the Daleks and all that sort of stuff. But of course, I was utterly wrong. So that's not that's not anybody's fault. It's not Cornell's fault. That's completely my knee-jerk reaction. But you know, looking back at it now, the more I look at it, the more levels there are, the more enjoyable it is. A huge amount of emotion in that. Absolutely tons. But it is a bit silly in places, isn't it? I mean, about the the Reapers um, stitching up time and. All this kind of business. It's like, why haven't they come back since? And you know, they're not very well realised, are they? They're, and they're just they're kind of very poor CGI. Mm. They were thrown they're... in so that there'd be a monster in the story. Yes. Really, yeah. they? Would have been I better mean, if that's... there wasn't one. Actually, made a good toy though. <laughs> mm. Made an interesting toy. 
yeah. yeah, I think that I think that story was originally written without them, and Russell T. Davis asked him to put them in. But this is an example of Russell T. Davis, for all his brilliant qualities, isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily always have his eye on the game. Because as soon as you throw Reapers into a story like that, that means that whenever you do a time travel story afterwards, a time paradox story, you know, you've got your audience saying, well, where's the Reapers? You know, Last of the Time Lords is only two yes. years later, and it's got this great big time paradox in it, and you're thinking, well, you know, where's the Reapers, Russell? Well, it could be, it made... could be a different type of paradox, couldn't it? That's a paradox it could, created yeah. by t- uh, her running through herself, as well. <laughs> excuse the expression, running through herself uh, while she's and, and saving her dad's life at the same time. But I can imagine mm. this. I mean, I can imagine really, if I, if I was a little kid watching this, I can imagine it being a boring one for me. And in fact, yes, it probably would be boring. And in fact, probably the only thing that would keep your interest is these huge things clinging, clinging to the outside of the church. Yes. Mm. So yeah. Yes, possibly. Yeah. So that's another good reason to have them. If you in. look at... Um... If you look at series one as as a obviously it was a series that brought it back and and to a certain extent you've got to train the audience so I think it was an essential episode within the series in that it what it did touch on time paradoxes and it said well we're we're playing with time travel here so probably for the first time ever in Doctor Who you see literally an instant reaction to them changing history so yeah. it's it's a one off in that respect but I think you know for, for the for the audience to see and say right why don't they go back in time they've got a time machine why don't they just go back and change everything so it's it's there as a, a little lesson for the audience isn't it Do you want to know the most ironic thing about Father's Day I've said this before I think series 1 works as a series of trials rather like a Saturday night live entertainment sort of X factor type of thing where the contestants undergo a different challenge each week rose is undergoing a different challenge each week in series one to become kind of for want of a better expression to become the perfect companion but the really ironic thing is the challenge this week is to go back and watch her father's death and not interfere and one week after adam has been kicked off the tardis for uh you know time traveling And here we've got Very Rose true. doing exactly the same thing. And the only reason she stays on... Well, it's explained in the next episode, isn't it? Nice but <laughs> That's the only reason he keeps her aboard, isn't it? I thought this exact same thing at the very moment that that happened. That I thought, hang on, they just mm. kicked Adam off for this. So yeah. already, you know, straight away it was like, a, ooh, this is... It's almost like two writers going off and doing their thing, but not actually kind of... Talking over the phone and saying, "So hang on, what? what so what are you putting in your one?" <laughs> uh, well, we're putting you know, this guy. And he just yeah. steals a bit of time and messes around. He gets kicked off. Oh right. Oh maybe I won't have Rose saving her father then. Yeah, but the thing is, Russell T. Davis wrote the long game and plotted mm. out the series. And you know, from the writer's tale, he actually rewrote quite a bit of Father's Day as well, didn't he? Does he not talk about I it? Don't know. I think I he think does. possibly. Yeah. yeah, I think it's quite well <clears> known that. A lot of Father's Day is actually Russell T. Davis rather than Paul Cornell. Okay. But this is a common thing in it. The final draft is very often always going to be the showrunner as opposed to the individual mm. scriptwriter. So he, Russell T. Davis was all over this. He knew exactly what he was doing. And yet he didn't have the common sense to just stick something else in between 
so that this didn't follow, you know, exactly the next episode after mm. the other one. Mm. There's a few, as great as Series 1 is, and as great as Father's Day is, because in spite of, mm. you know, what we've said, it, there are a few moments when it's a bit dull and it, it's a little bit flat looking. In spite of that, it is still a great episode. And that last 10 minutes makes mm. up for a multitude of sins because mm. it is so brilliant. But in spite of all those things, you can't help but think Russ T. Davis was just a little bit too close to the action to see some of the sort of smaller mistakes he was making. And it is actually crucial. It is actually crucial. I think it's far more crucial to the um, series arc, as I shall explain later on, than um, the long game was. <laughs> I shall come. Who, who, who was it who said uh, it's, it's vital? Was it Mark or Lee? Uh, Simon or Lee? Me, probably. Oh. <laughs> Can't remember. No, if it's you, 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 I remember the voice. Um, oh, okay. I've, how long has <laughs> Blue Box Podcast been going on? Oh, just two over two yeah, years. Two all and that and time, I still or... can't tell Mark's, Lee's, and Simon's voices apart. That's, that's, I can't You're believe joking. we just need some action. Yeah, I can't we believe we just made we that admission some, uh, in the middle of a podcast. The only, the only reason that you can't tell is because the three of us don't have an accent and JR's got an outrageous northern accent. That's probably so. if, if, if JR probably had the same accent as you three yeah. or a similar one, I'd probably be able to tell it. I'd tell you all apart. <laughs> Mind <laughs> you, I've been listening to Radio Free Scarrow for seven or eight years. It's only in the last year or so that I've been able to tell Stephen and Chris apart. Really? Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Ah, uh, right. Should we get on to story number four? Let's. Okay. Rose. Uh, yeah, it is Rose. <laughs> I absolutely love Rose. It's not perfect. It's not perfect by a long shot, but I still absolutely love it. I think in that first week, I watched it six times before mm. the end of the world came on. Mm. It's just one of those. I mean, the. I suppose the biggest point about Rose is before Rose was on, before the end of the world was on, everybody had seen Rose, so they had a kind of a clue as to what tone to expect. But before Rose was on, nobody knew how funny it was. You know, nobody knew how much no. fun Doctor Who was going to be. Nobody realised that it was going to be this big sort of cartoony adventure. Most people's expectations were that because he was including a shop girl, and it was being filmed on this place, the Power Estate. It was going to be like EastEnders with aliens. Nothing could be further from the truth, really, could it? No, the balance was seemed to be really, really good in this. The tone of the, like you say, the comedy, and the, and you know, there was some seriousness in it as well, a few bits and pieces. And his seriousness and his goofiness kind of really, really worked. It's just, it was just great the way he walks, the way he, you know, he talks. The the whole kind of weight of the nine hundred year old Time Lord is on his shoulders within one breath when he turns around and talks to her you see it in his eyes he's such a good actor he can pull that off a uh, big stupid child one minute and then this kind of ancient person the next it just he won me over within minutes actually i mean that I, what i really love about that obviously we all saw it with the graham norton stuff going on underneath it as it came in uh, you know the other show that bled into the actual episode but once we got past that bit the first second you see the doctor where he opens the door or whatever and grabs her hand and says you know hello i'm the doctor run he's there with a bomb in his hand you know he's about to blow up her workplace they run and, you know, you just think, yeah, OK, this is it. This is what Doctor Who's going to be like. It's just going to be a big blast. No pun intended. <laughs> In fact, you know that bit with the um, Graham Norton? Yeah. I thought that was deliberate when I first watched it. I did. 
I thought that was supposed to be part of the um, whole like, making it all a bit weird and spooky. It sounded down in like the a cellar. radio, didn't it? Like a radio or TV was left on or something. I thought when she yeah, was coming down, yeah, it sounded like it was. Yeah, Wilson's radio That's coming it, yeah. in from the next room or something. <laughs> Doc, Rose. What were your thoughts when you know when you first sat down and watched the first episode of the revived Doctor Who? I didn't cry. <laughs> I I don't have great memories of this. I have vivid memories of watching um, End of the World the following week. Um, I think my no, I don't have vivid memories of watching this at all. Actually. Um, I wow. did think that I, th- well, I think I think I think what you were saying about soap earlier is interesting because I think people they'll say oh they're including a, a, a mother and a, a counselor say and a boyfriend therefore it's soapy and therefore people have, people have extrapolated from that oh therefore yeah. it's got something like EastEnders but actually it's not soapy in the sense of like a soap opera at all is it they're just yeah, using soap yeah. soapy in probably an, um, the wrong context. It's nothing like EastEnders or no. Corrie. It's well, more like a sitcom how, in some yes. respects. How, yeah. would, how, would you, how would you define a soap? That's the thing, isn't it? Well, it's an ongoing drama set in a single location with a with a single cast of characters. Yeah, which is what the Paula State seems to be, for me. Um, well, it's not, because the end of the world is somewhere else in time. No, 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 but that was, that's outside. When you come back to the Paula State, it's the same. You're right, it is a bit like him dropping into kind of EastEnders, uh, you know, every other week, because yes, they but, don't really but change. But possibly... what I really like about it is that you do get this, this, this journey, uh, especially in the second season, when you end up having Jackie and and Mickey going in the TARDIS and being involved with the Cybermen and parallel worlds and all yeah. this sort of stuff, it, it then suddenly the two worlds meet beautifully, unlike dimensions in time. Oh, we've just had a beautiful from Lee. That's number two on your bingo card, ah, ladies and gentlemen. Possibly. Can I just interrupt? Yeah. Mickey, Mickey aside, <laughs> if I can just interrupt. Mickey yeah. aside, it may keep returning to this, to this background, but they don't return to yeah. do in-depth uh, examinations of any of the characters... I mean, no, they're, yeah, they're really no, they just, they're just filler, aren't they? Apart from me. Yeah, no, you are, you are right. Soap is the wrong, soap is the wrong is word the to throw it. the ongoing story of those characters in that location. Yeah. Featuring is... characters and a location in another story <clears throat> is just a story. It's not a soap And the one thing you can tell the difference of soap is, if this had been EastEnders, they would, there would have been immediately plots about how... Um, how much Rose and Mickey had suffered in um, an interracial relationship. Oh, we've we've received um, you know uh, uh, hate mail through the post, and uh, his Mickey's Mickey's parent, Mickey's family don't approve of him going out with a white girl. What I think is brilliant about this is they don't even mention it at all. It's just yeah, left it's for you to for for kids. I think mean, that's brilliant for kids. Kids looking at that. I'm just going to think. They're going to think. Oh, there's something unusual uh, here. They're making a, a point about the fact that he's black and she's white, and their boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm. But I think they don't even mention it at all. I think that's what you need. Our kids, kids are looking like, and they'll just say, "Oh, it's what's unusual about yeah. that." Exactly. Yeah. Far better than well, we must admit. He does. I have no problem with him. It with uh, with him doing it, but he does tend to crow uh, to. Make when he's doing, uh, he's saying, say, Oh, so and so is gay, 
Also, no, so-and-so's got, he's got a husband, or she's got a wife. He, I think that they could have learned from that by doing, maybe by making that. Just, you know, it's, oh, it's, um, so what? Uh, what's special about that? Whereas you just tend to say, have it said as if it's, you know, quite, uh, he's, he's saying, well, massive wink as he's saying it, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Mm. He does it slightly too often for his mm. own good as well. I don't think it's so often that it's problematic. I mean, it's hardly there at all, enough. is it? But to be fair, yeah. it's only much later it's on. Often enough, it's often enough that it's noticeable by about the third series. The number of times, you know, he feels necessary to acknowledge yeah. it on the screen. I mean, they're saying, what is it, Waters of Mars, where they're, they're sending messages back to their family at Earth. And either one of the, the male people on the base sends a message back to his husband, or one of the female sends one back to her wife. And it's done, and you think, it, it sounds as if they, you, you get the impression they're saying, ha ha ha, look what we've done here, aren't we, um, aren't we daring? Whereas I, think, I do think if they'd just done it, they could have written that as if it was, um, you know, yes, it it is. It's, it's it's something that no one even thinks about in this in this century. Uh, it would have worked a lot better. It's only fifty years in the future, though, isn't it? Warders oh, Mars. is it? All right. I think so. Wasn't it middle of the next, in middle of this century? Or am I wrong? I might be remembering yeah. that wrong. Yeah, I doubt, I doubt we'll be having sure. bases on Mars yeah. in twenty sixty. Yeah, Maybe cause... that's population control. Maybe they just make everybody gay in the future, <laughs> which keeps the population down. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, can I just mention Jackie Tyler? Yeah. Um, simply. Okay, you've mentioned him. Simon, Sim- what did simply you think genius. of? Simply she's beautiful. She's beautiful. Okay. Yeah, she's beautiful, mate. Yeah, <laughs> be- no, no, there there's, there's, there's something. I mean, the actress uh, plays this to perfection. Um, and I, I haven't seen any other actress in Doctor Who since that has played kind of like a mother figure or somebody who's utterly believable. I believe that that woman exists utterly and totally. And, you know, you get the measure of her when she comes through going, oh, I asked her to claim for compensation, skin like an old Bible and all this sort of business. The lines are just perfect. Russell T. Davis has think... been laughing so much when you wrote those. But she delivers like, like unbelievably brilliant. Yeah, it's great. Don't you think she's really cartoony? Oh don't yeah, care. I think I th- yeah. I think the I line think... about oh, there's a strange man in my bedroom is completely <laughs> out of um, yeah. Carry on, character. Yeah, yeah. Well, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Character for the it's... show, I mean, not character for her. When yeah. she says she's realistic, I think she's anything but realistic. Did I say that? But that's the pretty much. You can believe. How lovely is the, the no, doctor's reaction that. to that? Is lovely as well. Yes. Yeah. Listen, I know people like that. She's she's pretty realistic. <laughs> but she's done, she's written and performed in a very cartoony style. And I don't think she really changes all that much throughout those first two series either. I think she's still pretty cartoony by the end. Which yeah. is not a complaint, by the way. I loved that aspect of series one. I think that was one of the great things about those early episodes. That it did feel Definitely. like somebody was doing a live anime, a live action, a live action cartoon almost, and I mm. kind of felt it was a bit of a shame when it started getting more serious. Not to the extent that I thought, "Oh my God, the Empty Child's rubbish," because it's not as cartoony as Rose and Aliens of London were. But you know what I mean? If they'd have kept that sort of theme throughout that entire first series, so that the whole of that series, all thirteen episodes, were as cartoony as Rose. I could have seen that working. It wouldn't have been the Doctor Who that we eventually got in series two, three, and four, but I think it would still have been a workable TV series that people would have really enjoyed. 
Anyway, moving on. Well, can I say something? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Simon. That's <laughs> yeah, all right. And I'm going to go back to my previous point about how this series works as a, as a little machine to, to get people back into it. Obviously, this is the first first episode in the completely new style. And I think we've kind of been, to a certain extent, eased into it by the by the movie because we'd already had that midway thing. Because, I mean, if there had been no movie, this would have been quite quite jarring compared, as an old-time fan, quite jarring compared to the old series. Of all of a sudden, you've got all this incidental music and it's all very slick and glossy. And um, But, I mean... Watching well, I don't it. know. I think this is closer to the. I think this is closest to survival than it is the TV movie, or than TV movie is to survival. Do you think so? Do you think so? Yeah, very much so. I know so. what you mean. There are some elements I can't quite put my finger on that the TV movie kind of, yeah, moved in the right direction. Well, I mean, but the way the doctor it, well, behaves. The TV movie was far... more expensive. That's yeah. about the shape and size of it. Simon's saying. <laughs> This is a million miles away from survival because you can see money on the screen like in the TV movie. <laughs> this is but in true. every other but in every other respect, this is much closer to survival than the TV movie was. Mm. TV movie tried to be some kind of older teens, early adulthood sort of drama along the lines of the X Files, which was like kind of mysterious. And but I all think this in kind of style, stuff. certainly in direction and things like that, things like the clock and the zooming down to the planet and all that sort of thing, all of a sudden there was scale. Um, Have you not seen Remembrance of the Daleks with the pre credit se- the pre title sequence? The yeah. pre title sequence on Remembrance of the Daleks is pretty much what you got at the start of Rose. Mm, okay, okay. Well yeah, Go but, back to my. You don't get Murray Gold's music game. Oh, I'm about to get to that. Thank Sorry. you very much. <laughs> yeah, but that's closer to things like what Kef McCulloch was doing than it is don't to what they're doing yeah, in the TV yeah. movie. That's why I hated it so much. What are you talking about, uh, Willis? <laughs> but that was the only thing I hated in Rose was that initial music because it, I just, it, it sounded cheesy. No, it was awful. It was fantastic. There's nothing wrong with cheesy, Simon. It was what, right to start right a new series of Doctor Who. It was no well. Look, look at it this way: it. it could only improve, and it did. So oh, we're going the right way. Aren't critic. We? Oh yes, I'm not sure it improved after Rose. I think Rose is one of the absolute peaks of the entire five years of Russell T. Davis' Doctor. Leaving Perry Vale in any compass direction is the right direction. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, talking of... what I will say. Go on. Oh, go on. No, go on. Well, I was going to say thanks. Um... <laughs> Oh, hang on, I'm the guest. Uh, yeah, he's yeah, the guest. Say. Let him the... No, I didn't mean Go that, on. seriously. Go on, What guest. we were saying about um, <laughs> what's-his-name's direction. Uh, who was directing Father's Day? This is... Oh, Father's Joe Day is Joe Hearn. Hearn. Um, Keith Boak, or Boak, however it's pronounced, gets a lot of stick, doesn't he? Uh, and he's, he's, yeah. he seems to be the only one who gets fan stick, who the people at Cardiff never do anything to defend at all, which I think is quite nasty. But Rose's yeah. Rose's introduction to the TARDIS is filmed wonderfully, oh. I think. Oh. Yeah, she runs think, in, runs yeah. out, runs around, and that's fabulous. That it was the best. This is a brilliant job of the entire mm. three episodes he does. I think people complain about the special effects in uh, World War Three with the Slovene. I don't think there's an awful lot he could have done about that. You know, mm. I think he does. I think he does an absolutely fantastic job of bringing this sort of dynamic series to the screen and making it really exciting and frenetic and involving 
and the performances are great. I think he's got he gets some great performances from the actors in these three episodes. You know, and, I, and let's not forget that the episode as a whole catches the audience. I I've said this before on the podcast. When I sat down to watch it, I watched with my ex girlfriend and her daughter, and I think her daughter was about seven, seven or eight. I can't remember now. Um, but the 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 experience of it was just that I got to the end of the episode and completely expected to turn around to them and they 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 would look nonplussed and but they weren't they were com- I said did you enjoy that he said yeah that was great it's like yeah but yeah. it's Doctor Who this isn't everybody this isn't supposed yeah. to happen every single person at my work was talking about it the next day yeah. everybody because mm. I kept saying oh go and watch it watching this oh no I'm watching that nerdy old crap so no go and watch it please just like evidence first, of- so just first five minutes and they they. Everybody I talked to had watched it, and that's a that's a first. And it's worth nobody ever it's listens well to me. judged. In <laughs> of all the monsters to choose, they didn't go straight in with the Daleks. They got the Autons, and that was a perfect introduction because you've got that element of real life being turned on its head and becoming dangerous, and therefore you you catch mm. people's imaginations, certainly the children's. So it was it was perfectly judged. And uh, just just one thing that I never liked about this, and I still don't like, is the that burp. music at the start. No, it's the burp. You know, there's the um, uh, oh. the bin, the bin burp. Oh, that's, that's a hook great. The yeah. kids are like, quite, I quite it's like farting aliens. Oh, you yeah, that's because you do it a lot. <laughs> I remember watching it when at first time and think and thinking and liking it, but thinking well not liking it, but be okay with it, but thinking oh, there'll be trouble about that. I'm not. I'm not yeah, going yeah. to be all Star Trek about it and say you know why would it burp? <clears throat> because I'm sure somebody would come back in and say well plastic would do that if it scraped the particular way. But um, you know it, it was funny, but you didn't ah, need but it. I, I, turned, yeah, yeah. I turned to the little girl who sat next to me watching it, and she laughed, and that for me means it worked. But the it farting, the farting worked better for me. I understood why they were farting. <laughs> There's no reason why there was a burp coming out of a bin of an auton. Why would an auton burp? Well, this is retcon Rawlings, isn't it? So as long as there's an excuse given on, yeah. Do you know what? As that, long that, as there's an that's excuse, that's my superhero given, name. <laughs> yeah, as long as there's an excuse given on screen, you're fine with it. But if nobody actually yeah, tells you why it happened, no, no, this this is a good point though, because Russell Davis was absolutely expert at giving explanations for anything. If you were to, even off screen, he would you people someone would say, oh, why is that happening? Why would that be doing that? And he'd go, well, that's because da 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 da, and he'd reel off this pseudo scientific kind of answer, which kind of made sense and we all went oh yeah all right okay we're, we're with that we were with well, russell t davis but he didn't ever explain why, that but yes but do you want to know why it's never explained then go on then. unlike say the farting that is because in the script it doesn't burp when they filmed yeah, it exactly it didn't burp they added the burp later after yeah. all the filming <laughs> had taken place yeah. so you didn't have anybody there so that they could film a scene where somebody says, oh, that really been just burped. And somebody else says, oh, yes, that's because of the excess of carbon dioxide involved in the transformation between the real Mickle and the plastic Mickle. When you said when, right, filmed it, when they filmed it, it didn't burp. I'll accept that. I thought you meant it didn't really burp. <laughs> no, it didn't. Somebody said, can we add a burp to that in post-production? And Russell T. Davis yeah. said, Oh, go on! That would be funny. Moment yes, uh, Chris Franklin sold it for sold it for me was the um, we're spinning around the Earth, so it's a million miles mm. an hour thing, where it suddenly stops being, you know, he's, he's sort of walking like uh, a bit like um, one of the Gallagher brothers, 
um, yeah. across the estate, and suddenly stops, and he's calm, and he says that to her. I thought, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, uh, I don't know who he is. When he's, he says to, uh, on the side of the Thames, it's a disguise, and he's got this sort of slightly gleeful, slightly um, childlike look yeah. on his face. That's lovely, that that. Much better oh, than yeah, yeah, yeah. Every Plant Has a North, which was which was spoiled in every trailer. <laughs> uh, it was the usually it was the quote mm. that was printed in DWM in the sort of preview of it. Mm. And so every every time they repeat it now, I had already knew they were going to do that before it happened. And holding hands running across the bridge. I do insist that mm. my doctor and her and his companion be friends. Have that you is, never held hands with your friends? That is friendly, isn't it? No, that's what I'm saying. It's like it. Yeah, oh, I see right. what you mean. I thought that was a. <laughs> that's what me and Sam Yeah, you're right. The bit right. where <laughs> they're, they're, they're sitting in Simon's living room holding hands recording this podcast. Well, we drink our wine. Yeah, you're right, though, Doc. The bit where he gets. And, the, and this becomes problematic when David Tennant does it, because I think when David Tennant does it. And we've talked about this, about the sort of the smugness that's the that leads to the downfall. When when David Tennant does it, it's a bit glib. When Christopher mm. Eccleston does it, this kind of excitement at weird and unusual and possibly yes. dangerous yeah. things. When he does it, you actually feel excited at, you know, sort of weird and possibly dangerous alien things. Whereas when David Tennant does it, you just kind of think, oh, he's too big for his boots. That's because the, the Ninth Doctor is is, is vulnerable. Yeah, uh, that's the word you should have done for Bingo for me. It's going to come up a lot. Oh, well, we've already got two from you for the crying. <laughs> I didn't cry during. Oh, I've just said it again. It's one for each eye. <laughs> I've already. I've secretly noted down one from you, Simon, as well. Really? <laughs> no. What was your Should bingo? We, uh, what was your bingo? You need to get me into rant mode before I get patronising. Has <laughs> Joe said absolutely yet? Probably. Uh, yes, I have. No, but my my bingo moment is the point is. I think you should be. Here's the thing. <laughs> yeah, or here's the thing, or the point is. It's, they're both the same essentially, aren't they? Or the Jay, I'm just saying well. Lee. Yeah, that would do it. That yeah. would do it. Or bringing in Despicable Lee, that would be. Yeah, if I was to bring in Despicable Lee, that would be bad enough. Does he get the? Uh, does he get the wind and the tumbleweed then now? <laughs> no, but what he does get is when he annoys me, I he's sitting in front of me, so actually I can do physical damage to him, Ooh, and quite often do. Yeah. I've got your. Okay. I've, got, I've got one of your stories here from a, an anthology that might be coming up, and uh, I was reading it earlier, and it's very very good. But I don't know whether I should say that anymore. If you're going to do damage to me, virtually, I might just go and uh, start my virtual fire with a script. <laughs> what, with the virtual script? Yeah, it's okay. I'm going to start a virtual it, fire. <laughs> it's only a virtual script, so you can only virtually damage it. I think I've got a spare copy at home somewhere anyway. Don't. Moving on, we're into top three territory now, guys. Top three. Mm. Um, and we have been actually talking so long we've only got 10 minutes left so we'd better get on with it Um, number 3 out of Dalek, The Empty Child and Bad Wolf what do you think came in third of those three Doc, what do you think go on Doc because you're the guest and Lee keeps coming straight in did you just swear? 
coming straight into a no. I think it was Dalek. Uh, okay, Lee. Then go on. What's your guess? Bad Wolf. Shimon, what do you think? I think Bad Wolf as well, actually. Oh, I've got to say, I'm sorry, Doc, but it is Bad Wolf. <laughs> Possibly mm. because Dalek is just one of those stories that a lot of people give full marks to, regardless. Mm. But mm. if you weigh things up, I actually prefer Bad Wolf as well myself. It's, it's, Doc, it's a bit like um, Pointless, this game. I was going to say, it's a bit like Pointless, isn't it? You've got to try and figure out well, it's how people's like... minds work as opposed to what's the best story. <laughs> My well, God, like have I just been patronising? <laughs> yeah. It's not the first time in this episode, and oh, it's okay. certainly not the first time ever. That's number three on the bingo card, though, so it's only down for me to say, and the point is, and we're away. <clears throat> I usually do that on our topic episodes, though, so we may we may get away with it this week. What was I about to say? I can't remember. Bad Wolf. Anybody? Bad Wolf? Oh, no, no, no I was going to say, it's not like Pointless, it's like The Weakest Link. Oh, and... very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that was um a, a, a stunningly odd moment watching uh, the first episode of that and seeing Big Brother and the Weakest Link and all that sort of thing. I at first I was thinking, oh no, I'm not sure about this. This is going to date in seconds. And then I bought into Russell T Davis's weird world yet again. I thought, actually, yeah, of course it's going to, you know, this is this they will go out of date. They will stop. And then in a thousand years time or five hundred years time, whatever then they will look back and go, do you know what, those old series, let's put them back on again with a bit of a murderous twist. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally bought into it, actually. Well, and I loved the uh, fact that he was I, sitting in front of the I, Big Brother eye. I, it was fantastic. The, was, I, people yeah. say this, oh, that dates it instantly. And I'm like, oh, my God, did, did people stop listening to Beatles records because they're dated, because they sound like the 60s? Yes. Do people stop watching Help because it's dated? It looks like it was made in the sixties. You know, I've always agreed with I, that. Do people stop watching the um, the Unit era because they've all got sideburns? Yeah. What's the problem <laughs> with? Yeah, but it's true. It's like, <laughs> do we not watch? Do we not watch William Hartnell Doctor Who because it's in black and white? Oh, dude, that's brilliant. The sideburns. To be fair, Big yeah. Brother's still going. Oh. Dear. I don't mean it. I mean, do, do we not watch the unit era because Joe, whenever she rings someone to get some spares for the doctor, uses a chim phone? And more importantly, <laughs> uh, something like seven million people watch Bad Wolf, mm. of which less than a million have ever watched it for a second time. So should we curtail six million people's entertainment for the benefit of you know, less than 20% of that number who will be watching it again in the years to come because they might think, oh, it's a bit old-fashioned now, this one. Really? Yes, because it's our show. <laughs> and there you go again, Simon. That's your second tick tonight. Okay, thank you. No, Did I... anybody get hairs on the back of their neck moment when he comes out of the ge- they when they come out of the games and find themselves in the location from the long game? No. No, yeah. I did. Yes. I did. Doc? No. Oh, okay. I did. I I thought that was a brilliant conceit. Mm, yeah. I just thought... Yeah, you... yeah, go on. And Simon? Sorry, yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I was exactly the same. It's like, oh, yeah, oh. yeah. 
Yeah, when they come out, I mean, when I say hairs down the back of the neck, I don't mean in quite the same way as when he opens the TARDIS doors in Father's Day and finds no TARDIS there. I mean, when they come out of the games and find themselves in the in the location from the long game and you suddenly realise that the whole story has been connected up throughout all the episodes. Because until you get to Bad Wolf, you don't... You've heard the Bad Wolf name being repeated and you have the Blythe Droog moment in Boomtown. But until you get to Bad Wolf, you don't realise that the whole thing right back to the start oh, has kind got, of been... I got the hairs in the back th- I the next thing slightly when you know where Linda with a Y goes to the, to the light switch and then you see the thing on the wall, on the wall Bad Wolf Corporation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. If that's what you meant, yeah, then yes, I understand that. But I think the location side of it, if you're thinking, oh, Satellite 5, I just heard instantly I was thinking, oh... This is a bit like Ark mm. and Space Revenger. And it I understand me, what, I, what they were doing. Because yeah, I thought Monkey was the most boring thing I'd seen for years. So it mattered, <laughs> so, it mattered yeah, depressed true. me rather than anything else. Yeah. But what I meant was the connecting up of the dots in the story. Ah, yes, it was pretty but, good. A, but, and, you know, the two moments, Blythe Droog, well, the two big moments, Blythe Droog and walking out into the game station to find its Satellite 5. Those were the two big moments for me when I thought, oh, wow, this is really going somewhere. Of course, in the second half of the story, when it turns out that Rose sends the words Bad Wolf out across the universe and all of time and space, so that she'll see the words Bad Wolf out in the universe and all across time and space, to tell her to go back to the Doctor, when actually she could just sit there having her chips with her mum and say, actually, you know what I really should do? I should go back to the Doctor because he needs me. She doesn't need Bad Wolf. He writes the bad wolf thing in and then no, no, doesn't no, no, know no, what to no, do no. with it himself. <clears throat> the the bad wolf thing, when she's in chalk on the playground. Mm. That's not that's not the thing saying to her, Oh yes, I should go back and save the doctor. That's telling her This is a More this is, is a message that's been sent to me. There is a way of me getting back to the doctor. Which is why she then tries to um open up to imagine that's the, that's part of the ways, isn't it? Uh, open you open up the TARDIS. It, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. She's bad. Oh, no, not saying bad I'll go and save the doctor. She's just saying someone sent me a message. They must be telling me that there is a way of me getting back to it. You know, I must know be able if, to affect the TARDIS. If you had a complete control, if you had complete control of the whole universe and all of time, why would you write Bad Wolf? Wouldn't you just say go and get the doctor? Or uh, if it was Stephen Moffat, you'd leave a note, wouldn't you? <laughs> because. <laughs> yeah. Because she's no choice. At the towards at the end of Party of the Ways, when she waves her hand and does it, she's got to choose Bad Wolf, because that's mm. the one that's been all throughout her uh, the last year for her. There lies the paradox. There lies the paradox. Yeah, yeah. Mm. By the way, Doc, we are talking about both parts of this. Yes, Let me ah, talk about the, yeah, yeah. Um, what did I think of the? Uh, <clears throat> well, something I didn't like in this was you know the. I thought the games worked really well, apart from the weakest link. And it wasn't the fact that it was the weakest link, it was the fact that that silly giggling that Rose was doing throughout it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm, I've been snatched from the TARDIS. I don't know how. I'm, I've, I've been separated from my friends. I'm on the weakest link. I'm going to start giggling. <laughs> I think that's silly. It might be supposed to have... It might have supposed to have been a nervous reaction, but it's... Yeah. it's it's a bit problematic. Isn't but when it? she it's gets disintegrated, <gasps> yeah, not yeah, so much yeah. the fact. Oh, I, every time I rewatch that, I try to remember: did I think at the time, oh, she's really dead or not? 
and I can't yeah. remember. But what really sells it for me that is not oh, the shock of it being disintegrated; it's the shock of his reaction. You know, he kneels yes. down on the floor and picks up the dust, and all these guards are sort of saying, "Oh, you're under arrest," and that he's just ignoring them. And that, gl- yeah. that glorious moment where Jack's sort of struggling in the back now and saying, "Don't yeah. touch him, leave him alone," which I think is lovely. That's what companions should do. They should be looking that, after the doctor. Do you know, you're right, I'd forgotten that. And that was actually a huge moment when I watched that. I thought it was one of the best moments in the show's history in a way, because you're right, it showed the Doctor completely pulverised with emotion. Yeah, absolutely, and, absolutely. You know, he, 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 end, he ends up being in the jail, you know, you see, you see him sitting there, and they've already formulated a plan. And there's this wonderful moment where he goes, let's do it. And you think, oh, he's kicking yeah. ass. Um, but the whole thing is driven by his, his emotion. Uh, you know, it's like he's lost somebody, out. he's lost all of his time lords, he's, he's killed loads of people, he's come off the time war, and now he's just lost it's all for nothing. the only thing yeah. that's going to save him. It was all for nothing. Absolutely fantastic. Bit. And, and the revelation that she was okay was like, oh, another Russell T. Davis kind of, yes. oh, I've just explained yeah. it in one sentence, but brilliantly done. Fantastic! That yeah, those those few moments, just brilliant. It was beautiful, and that's and of course that's your first um, example in the series of the companion dying and coming back in the next episode. Um, in, the, sorry, in the week between the two halves, yeah, when we were when we'd seen at the end in the coming next week thing, it says, "How do you survive the time war?" They survived through me. And everyone was trying to guess who was. Is it Davros? <laughs> is it? Good. Is it Adam? <laughs> Is it J.R. Salvo? <laughs> Who did you think it was? Adric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can it be Davros? Can it be Adam? Can it be J.R. Salvo? I thought, I thought it might be Dodo with a smoker's cough. They survived through me. <laughs> <laughs> the weird thing was, between those first two series, it's such a shame they didn't do it again the next year, but I don't suppose they would. All the countdowns that were oh, going yes. on. And yeah. the TV teasers with like mm. three days to go, or two hours to go, or whatever it was. My mm. God, have you ever seen anything like that for another TV series, no, especially a silly sci-fi program? Yeah, I mean, it all, was astonishing. All the stuff on the internet every week it changed. You know, all, all the cleverness of the the empty child and stuff like that. We'll get get to that in a minute. But yeah, every single week you had something slightly different. It was the mystery of the Doctor for Rose, wasn't it? Um, and yeah. you know who is this doctor and all that sort of thing and I think it's, it was almost like a separate website had been set up I don't know whether it had but if I remember right I'm sure it did it and a, they played it really beautifully website, wasn't it? yeah that's right and you could go on and, and not necessarily play games but kind of work out the mystery of what was going on mm. and uh, oh you know my kids weren't quite big enough to be playing these things so I was sitting on them myself and my wife looking at me going yeah that's what I've married <laughs> I've married I mean, that I think mean, so what I said about the um they do the oh, isn't it? Aren't we being wit- aren't we being arch and um, daring, having uh, gay references in the uh, show? I think they, they, it's absolutely glorious when Jack kisses them both. <laughs> mm. I think I think that's absolutely beautiful. And I thought, I think now, retrospectively, you... I wonder how many people were sniggering at that. But I remember thinking at the time, oh, that is absolutely wonderful. That is brilliant. Mm. That. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I it, react. Yeah. Did I react? I don't think I actually reacted that much. Oh no, I did react to that. Yeah, um, it just made me laugh. I thought it was really good. Yeah. It's very, it, very it, funny. It wasn't, it wasn't just the, the actual kiss. It was what he was saying. Yeah. You know, I wish I'd never met you. I was so much safer as a coward. And he's going. He's he's then running off, after he kissed them to, <laughs> to protect them against the Daleks. That's, that's yeah. what companions should be doing. 
A hero. Some, what a hero. Jumping in front of a bullet for the doctor, not just sitting sulking in the corner of the TARDIS, we're moaning about wanting to go back to Heathrow. Yeah. That bad wolf in the parting of the ways is not the best plot in the world. No, it's not. With yeah. The, uh, yeah. But <clears throat> it overcomes that because it is Russell T. Yeah. Davis writing his first finale. And regardless of what he's done with the plot, he has saved enough great moments yeah. so that it, even if following it isn't exactly the most interesting thing in the world, the things that happen, the hologram, and when it turns to the screen. Oh, brilliant. Ooh. That is absolute, you know, I cried. mouth moment. <laughs> oh, I think we all did. I do, like a baby sp- every time in that scene. My spine froze at that point. Mm, that was just astonishing. And that's Joe Hearn actually doing something good. I don't know whether that was in the script or not. I'm assuming it must have been, actually. That's the kind of thing the writer puts in. And the Doctor looks at the screen. But not as much as I cried a bit later, where he says, you know, he's, 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 he says, what have you done? And you say, yeah, you're supposed to do that. You'll kill yourself. And she says, I think it's probably the, also the best lines in the whole series. She says, I, I wanted you safe, my Doctor. I was sobbing my heart out at that point. Um, that's that's it, isn't it? My doctor. That means so have, much to all of us. That phrase. Did you have the uh, curtains drawn at that point? <laughs> I wasn't using the Kleenex for that purpose. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, are you proud of your sobbing? That's what I was trying to say. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Well, you must be because you're telling thousands of people it on the podcast. But uh, no, it's, well, it's the like, audience of oh, the Blue Box podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean thousands, that. Thousands of ants. And then uh, the biggest shame of all was the fact that he'd written in this regen- regeneration oh, yeah. to be a surprise, and we found out between the first and second episode. Well, I mean, that moment where he—I mean, the way it's written—you can tell it's written to be a surprise. Mm. If you can imagine coming to that absolutely without knowing the way Rose does, that piece of writing there where you suddenly start getting hints that it's about to happen and then you start getting visual clues that it's about to happen and then he starts talking about what's about to happen. Can you imagine being a fan and watching that and not knowing it was coming up and suddenly realising what was going to happen? And more interesting yet, can you imagine not being a fan and sitting there and watching that and not knowing what regeneration was mm, and yeah. wondering what the hell he was talking about. I mm. can't I can't begin to imagine. No. It's hard to know. We'd have to ask somebody who uh, who's younger than us. <laughs> Who'd never seen the well, programme. I don't think I said it out loud, but that was my and the point is moment, so that's <laughs> house for anybody who's been <laughs> keeping score. So was it was it leaked before between the first and second, or was it? It, it came it was, across it was, it was a proper announcement about the second week, wasn't it? Yeah, almost, between the first before and second episode, end of, the, end of the world. I just seem to it remember was, seeing it, it on the news. The the world, yeah. They they seem to treat it, or was it a case that they just trying to damage limitation by turning it into a proper? Because I'm sure it was reported on the news. It was the yes, the, because um, newspapers will pick up stories, yeah. Simon. So when it was leaked that Christopher Eccleston was leaving, no, I mean BBC the newspapers news. picked it up. Yeah, because by that point it was all over the media. Right. Okay. Yeah. Any BBC press office? I don't know who or how it leaked. I wasn't even on the internet at that point. 
And then the other thing was, two weeks later, I th- was it between The Unquiet Dead and Aliens of London, or must have been around about that time, when you found out that David Tennant was going to be the next Doctor. Yeah. And he's the chap who was narrating that programme that was on um, half an hour before Rose. What was it called? Doctor Who? Not The Ultimate Guide. Mm. Something like that. It was like a beginner's yeah, guide to yeah. Doctor Who. And there's David Tennant narrating that because he's just done Casanova mm. for uh, Russell T. Davis. And all of a sudden, oh, and that's the chap who's taken over in the TARDIS. All very odd. And mm. all a big shame because that would have been a great moment to have to have, to have lived through unaware that it was coming. Yeah. Anyway, we're up to about the hour or so, Mark, so it's time to go. We'll do the last two stories in our next episode, yeah? Because I know that you're lying. You've got your lying voice on. You wouldn't do that. (laughs) Okay, out of Dalek (laughs) and the Empty Child and the Doctor Dancers, which one came second? Gotta be Dalek, surely. Dalek, yeah, yeah. It'd be Dalek or I'm leaving now. Yeah, of course (laughs) it is. Dalek's one of those, for me... Dalek's one of those stories that is beautifully written and not so well executed. And I think, ultimately, it's a bit of a disappointment. And I think that's partly down to the direction. Mm. Well, I think it's majorly down to the direction, if I'm going to be completely honest. I think it's a great mm. script. Mm. But you guys, what did you think? Doc. Um, guest. <laughs> uh, I've forgotten now. Uh, Simon and Lee, so rude. <laughs> and not me though. I've already given my top and flip. Uh, I, I, I thought it was great. Um, I, didn't, I didn't think it was the story was strictly was basically fabulous. Uh, I didn't sort of Van Staten and Adam did do anything for me. Um, no. it's, it's the first time that we is it now the first time that we actually find out who the two competents of the Time War were. Do we actually yeah, know I think it is. Yeah, for yeah. Daleks? No, because this is the first time Daleks are mentioned, yeah. so it has to be the first time you find out what was happening. Yeah, I do. I do think the Dalek voice is so. I've, I've just been list, re- recently watching last few days, uh, which is the one with Rula Lenska in Resurrection, and the Dalek voices mm. are so rubbish, aren't they? Yeah, and um, and so slow as well. Uh, Nick Briggs actually puts. Emotion into mm. them. I think they used to think back then, oh, they're like Sidemen, they've got their emotions, but they're not like that, Daleks, are they? They're, they're all, not supposed they're, to be, they're no. They're bitter, yeah. bitter, bitter. Um, the little things like, this is very Doctor Who, you know, they're, they're, they're just landed in the museum, and he says, he just looks, oh, that's the Mylorator from the Roswell spaceship. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. The Roswell spaceship, oh, wow, brilliant, but immediately undercutting it. It's almost like saying, oh, that's the glove compartment from um, Apollo Apollo 13 or something. I love that. Um, uh, Chris Ferguson sells the, completely sells the Dalek with his fear acting. Uh, But Mm. I think even better than that is is once you realise it, you can't kill him. It's his sort of triumphant laugh. Ha! Ha! I love that sort of thing. Love, 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 love. love. Um, I I do like when he's talking to Van Staten. He says, mankind goes into space to explore. To be part of something greater, you just want to drag the stars down, stick them underground, under tons of mm. dirt, and label them. I did think at the time, ooh, just like fans. <laughs> <laughs> if he'd, he might have been passed a bit too much on the nose if he'd said, and alphabetized them. 
<laughs> and the best bit of all of it, uh, I think I've said, I've said before elsewhere, that one of the things I love in this series is that every they're the sprinkled little bits when just a space of about one or two words, they say something that you could, other, a lesser writer would have said in a, taken a whole paragraph to say. And they're, yeah. they're just, just before Adam is about to join them and say, oh, can I come with you? She's, Rose is saying to him, um, or, or maybe this, you know, if the, a Dalek could have survived, maybe one of your people could have survived. And he says, um, no, I'm the, only, I'm the only one left. Um, it's the end of the time where I win. How about that? Oh, I cried. Hmm. That's oh. so, so, <laughs> so. How about that? It's just the. I don't yeah. know if it's irony. The, yeah, uh, I mean, the bitterness. Uh, we, we'd of never... it all. Yeah. Go on, Lee. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know, how's about that then? You know, him saying, how about that? It's, yeah. It's, you would never have got the doctor saying that in the past, would you? So no. posh, <laughs> uh, be- beautifully, beautifully delivered. That's three for your bingo card there. Um, this episode is a really odd one because I kind of knew who was playing the Dalek, um, so I was ready to see the acting of the Dalek as opposed to everything else going on. Um, and it, I, I was waiting. I was waiting for the Dalek. I was thinking, okay, I know he's in this. So I'm going to see what's going on. Going to kind of check out the Dalek acting operating. And then I completely forgot about the fact that he was in it within seconds because the acting between Eccleston and the Dalek was the most taut and beautifully... Oh, I've got to stop saying the word. But it was. It was so well done. It's a brilliant piece of uh, acting. The best directing, actually, in this, in that episode. And I think the directing was done by the actors and you know in the Dalek and, and, and the voice, Nick Briggs and things. Every time I watch it, they use it as a clip quite a lot to hark back to. Um, in these kind of programs, you know, talking about Doctor Who ten years ago or whatever, and every time I get that chill down my spine, um, it's just so amazingly delivered by Christopher Eccleston. It's just pinpoint, and do you know what? The rest of it can fall away. Um, that was that was the moment for me. That's when I realised Doctor Who. Had, I was thinking, how can it get better than this? That is the best acting so far ever on TV. Have you ever have you ever read any of Robert Shearman's short stories? Yeah, and I know this one as well. His original version. It's a really no, good no, no, no. I mean, oh, no, sorry. no, no. Read his short stories, Lee. Not listen uh, to his audio. Did he write um, love song? No, that was was, was that? Uh... Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Love I read, songs I read that for the yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he does what he does in his short stories. He has a really good line in doing something really ridiculous. He takes a high concept, something like. Um, Oh, say an angel has been forced to go and live on a council estate for a year. And what he does is he takes this ridiculously high concept of an angel living on a council estate and he writes it in the most mundane way so that the the, the story is fascinating and the characters are fascinating. But because it's written in such a mundane way, it feels really normal. You know what I mean? He kind of normalises the amazing. Mm. And kind of, and Dalek kind of has a quality whereby he's taken this astonishing idea of this alien that is from the most powerful race in the cosmos, sort of, and there's one left, and this one alien that's left is in an underground museum on Earth, and he makes of it a pretty mundane story. The alien escapes. The humans are at one end of the building. 
the Daleks at the other end of the building. And, you know, for 30 minutes, the Dalek is moving from one end of the building to the other, getting closer to them. But what he does is here punctuates it with some astonishing bits. The bit where the Dalek comes into the room and there are all the soldiers standing around and you're thinking, right, this Dalek is going to start shooting at these one by one, picking them off. And instead, it shoots at the sprinkler. And you're thinking, what the hell? And then when you find out why the Dalek has shot the sprinkler first and then it can kill everybody in the room with one shot. And then a bit later on, things like, you would make a good Dalek. It's a really sort of average story punctuated with some moments of utter brilliance yeah it's just occurred to me the the relation the the similarity to kind of jurassic park it's that same thing of where this person's tried tried to contain something um and then oh yeah all hell breaks loose and people criticize jurassic park for being quite two-dimensional but there as you say there are magic moments within it it um and that's that's why it works I think Dalek as a whole, as a going back to my master plan thing for series one, it was another one of those pieces of the jigsaw that need to be established for the series. You needed to introduce a Dalek, and the the best way of doing that is to take a single Dalek, and and we find out what it is that makes up a Dalek. Um, so it's a perfect story for it, really. And the thing is, I don't know if anybody else sensed this, but as soon as you see that one Dalek in that one episode, you know damn well. That's not going to be the only Dalek story. It can't be. Yes. Yeah. So it kind of it were it for some of the members of the audience who've never seen the Daleks before. It works as an introduction to the concept of what a Dalek is and shows you how powerful a single Dalek is. So you know you can imagine, or possibly even you can't imagine how powerful an entire army of them could be. For other members of the audience who have no idea what a Dalek is whatsoever. It can't, it's just a teaser. Yeah. And for the fans, it's like, it's Russell T. Davis dangling this single Dalek in front of them and tormenting them. You're going to have to wait. You know, that kind <laughs> of that's a thing. The, that's the importance mm. of, of the effect of Eccleston's fear acting when it first sees it. Yeah. Because if, you come to, if you've never seen a Dalek before, your first reaction might be, I mean, if you're British, you probably would have, even if you've never seen Doctor Who. But if you're from... Just uh, a non-fan from the states. Your first reaction to that could be to giggle. It how, could be, how yeah. silly it looks, isn't it? But you, but you can't because of the, how, the way he's selling how scary it is. And besides, you can't giggle at how silly it looks because previous week you had the Slovene. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but again, yeah, but we were almost meant to giggle at that, weren't we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, uh, Russell D. Davis throws in all these, um, you know, moments of old oh, overgrown pepper pot and all that, all the kind of things that they've been called over the years, um, and Doctor Who and everything else about you know, the TARDIS and all that. He, he takes the things that fans have said. He takes takes the things that non-fans have said and criticised or threw out as a joke, and he he, he weaves it into the new series uh, really cleverly by having characters kind of comment on it. Um, and the way Eccleston says those words, uh, you know, about the pepper pot, the way he absolutely spits them out with such intense mm. anger, it's like, you know, calling a Dalek a pepper pot will never be the same again after that moment, really. <laughs> yeah. um, anything else about Dalek? Adam, Simon I suppose. Helmet. Oh, yeah, Simon Helmet, yeah. <laughs> of course, Simon had to, you know, that should have been on your bingo card. 
mention of Cybermen. What, what creature was the Dalek supposed to be? Because initially, before they knew they had the rights, wasn't this going to be a different creature? Am I right? Well, no, it started as oh, a Dalek story. Oh, wasn't it going to be a Toptophane or something? Yeah, it started as a Dalek story. Yeah. started as a Dalek story. And when they thought they couldn't get the Daleks, they briefly thought about putting the Toclophane mm. in there instead. But, God, that of course... Would rubbish, oh, yeah, it would have been... Well, can you imagine? I, I mean, they designed the Toclophane to suit the story that they're in, so the Toclophane wouldn't have looked like the Toclophane ultimately did look had they been in this story. I can't imagine what they would have been like. But future humans who've turned into machines is basically what would have been in Dalek instead. Which might not have been a million yeah. miles away from the Daleks, but it wouldn't have been a Dalek, would it? No. You know in the original series of Star Trek, where Kirk keeps getting his shirt off, and you mm. know what they're doing, when when Chris gets his jumper off, you do think, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're not appealing to the uh, Shat fans, are they? No. <laughs> Is that an expression? Shat fans? It Shipper, be. isn't it? It should be. It sounds good. Yeah. The Shat Shippers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The story that came top, then, it goes without question, really, doesn't it? It goes without saying, rather. It, it stood out, head and shoulders, really, didn't it, above the rest? Oh. Possibly. Possibly because Russell T. Davis had either written the rest or had written final draft on the rest and possibly one of the reasons this stands out is because it's Moffat's dialogue on screen. So that makes it stand apart, even apart from the fact that it's such a brilliant yeah. story. That makes it stand apart anyway, because it feels slightly different. R2-D famously said he didn't touch it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And I think that was the only one that he didn't go anywhere near. <laughs> and why would you when it's that good? We ought to say what it is, by the way. <laughs> Aliens of... No... The Empty Child and the Doctor Dancers, of course. <laughs> Nobody's going to talk about this one, just are they? They're just going to sit there staring into space with a, a sound smile effect on their of face. Homer saying, Don't hurt for me. <laughs> Don't say that in front of Lee, please. God, I've got a second box of Kleenex now. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense, some of this story. He's got things like... You know, it's it's already Stephen Moffat going into fairy tale mode, isn't it? These little alien sort of robot medical things have come down and they find this injured child and they assume... You know, they, these are little... I think they're little robots, aren't they? Yeah. They assume... That because he's had this terrible accident and the the mask, which is made of an entirely different material, includes glass in it and all sorts of other things. And clearly, from the way it's attached to the rest of its face, can't be supposed to be attached to his face. They assume it's a part of his physical makeup. You know, it's based on such an absurd... The entire plot is based upon such an absurdity that if you stop to think about it for a minute... You just shake your head and say, what are you on? And yet he disguises that so mm. well. He makes everything else about it so good that you wouldn't mind anyway, even if you did have a problem with the absurdity. And he makes uh, the dialogue sing and the characters sing so much that by the time you're halfway through, 
I don't think you're really even following the story. And he creates such a brilliant mystery about it anyway that unfolds at such a beautifully judged Mm. pace that if you're following the story, it works. And if you're not following the story, it works. If you're just enjoying the characters and the dialogue. Because there Mm. are great long scenes of 10 and 15 minutes at a time Mm. when nothing's going on in the plot whatsoever. And it's just Jack, the Doctor and Rose talking to each other. And it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I it mean is. that must be true because you you watch it now and you see the the two or three moments during the the course of the story when the actual the nano genes come up and you think oh how didn't I see that yeah it's so obviously you know um, presaging what's coming but I I didn't see it at all <laughs> and I think because I was so caught up with it sorry for interrupting. You- no, 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 you didn't interrupt. But you just think, you're right, every time you see the nanogenes, what you're really thinking about is bananas and squareness guns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's wonderful. I mean, it's the plot is so slight, and this was one of the things that came up when all this, the episodes underran and they had to put all these extra scenes in. And Moffat, I mean, one of the other illogicalities was that not only is this empty child being created so that all these other people were created in his image with these gas masks on their face, but they can use things like the clapping toys as sort of remote communication devices. Mm. Makes no sense whatsoever. And Moffat has, what was I in the middle of saying? Dunno, interrupted myself, lost it. Carry on, guys. <laughs> well, it's creepy as hell, isn't it? It's where well, It mm. works, and, and it'd be a, it would be a crime. Oh, I know what I was saying. Free- I'll come back to it in a minute. It'd be a crime for it not for him not to have pushed it forward and 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 played it like it was and as you say you the the viewer forgives all of that because it's damn creepy. But I tell you what, if if that child had been wearing one of those Mickey Mouse gas masks that he used to have, that would yeah. have made it even more creepy. I think. Yeah. Do you know what though? As creepy as it is, it's also the funniest two episodes of the entire thirteen. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's that, it's the thing I was about connection, to say, isn't it? Oh, you, you get a connection between horror and, and humour, don't you? Where people will mm. laugh nervously, so it does balance out. And again, there's another gay character, of course. In fact, two. I was thinking of the butcher, but of course, Captain Jack, the mm. omnisexual. In fact, three. Um, go on. Um, uh, what's his name? They call him. He calls him Tiger. Oh, of course. Yeah, the other Air Force guy. Yeah. No, what I was about to say was there's about enough plot in this to cover about 30 minutes of television and yet across an hour and 15 minutes across an hour and 15 minutes it's better because he puts so much incidental detail and so much character detail in it that you, you could have lapped up another half an hour, another hour of this without any more plot whatsoever just to spend the time with the characters he's mm. peopled it yeah. with I'll try to keep this brief because I think most of what I'm going, oh, to, in I'm that going case, to say. Let's move on and forget it altogether. Most of you dare, you know why. Um, <laughs> I've, I think I've said umpteen times before on a podcast, but it's it's, it's brilliant. It's the only it's the only time Doctor Who's epic ever made something genuinely epic, uh, and it's not epic because of millions of CGI monsters. It's epic because of the um, the, the situation they put them in, the blitz. In World War Two, and then it's just you get that brilliant situa- um, si- situation, and you just allow the story to breathe. Uh, <clears throat> Jay has makes a good point that the it's only thirty minutes of plot. I've heard people suggesting actually this could be this could have been just a, a one-parter, but you'd lose everything 
that makes it epic. All these, this succession, mm. one after the other, are beautifully written, mm. acted, and observed character scenes. You know, the children around the table. That's nothing to do with the plot. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the Doctor and uh, the... Nancy on the bridge. Mm. Mm. It's, I, oh, I, mean, I this... think it's... I think it's stupendously glorious. Um, yeah, but do you know another reason why all of us probably like it? It's because it's, it is quite like a 70s Doctor Who. It is a bit like a 70s paste. Like you say, yes, it had room yes, to breathe. Yeah. It, it's slower. And I really loved it for that. I thought, hey, this is great. This isn't moving at breakneck. And I'm getting used to the characters. I love. You don't get bored. I mean, there's something happening all the time. But you're right, the bit around the table with the kids doesn't need to be there. But I'm so glad it is because mm. it makes the next scene even more creepier when the kids at the door. Um, the it's actually yeah. very like the Curse of Fenric in some ways. Yes, yes, it I is. think that's the classic story. It probably reminds me of the most yeah. in terms <laughs> of the atmosphere. Oh and, God, ima- yeah. imagine if Nancy had come to the Doctor and said, "Oh, I feel really hot." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the no, oh the wind is just whipping through my clothes. Oh God! But it just goes to show what you can do with decent, yeah. you know, with a decent budget and with the love of the production team. I guess. But, but you're right about the tone as well, um, JR. And it's got that script. Yeah, the fairy tale kind of um, feel to it because. Oh, absolutely! If, if you look at the Idiot's Lantern, which is set only kind of ten years into the future of that, thereabouts, um, the Idiot's Lantern is a lot more realistic. It's more in your, you know, it's yeah. it's, it's it's like someone's got a video camera going out to nineteen fifties and just filmed it, and that's what you get. Whereas this has got a very odd atmosphere to it. It's almost like when he's standing up in the club, everybody there, it's almost like not real. They're almost like nesting. That you know, mm. they don't actually have this. You're not focusing on any one person in that room. They're they're extras that are just sitting there looking at him. But it's quite strange. It's very odd. It's the doctor yeah. is the only thing that's important in that scene. Well, he's um, and then you start getting the ring in and uh, from the from the tel- in, from his box. He actually actually pulls a <laughs> you know the phone out and goes, "Hang on, that's not supposed to do that." <laughs> Absolutely yeah. brilliant stuff, running all the way through it. But he kind of sets it. it oh, I said this way back when actually. When series one was first on. Have you ever heard the expression Avengers Land? Yes. I have now. Yeah, Avengers Land is what fans of the Avengers describe the sort of the England of the Avengers oh, as. Right, because yes. it's patently yeah. it's patently not the country we live in. And yet it's kind of insp- it's kind of a slightly fantasy metaphorical version of the real world. You know, like a, a, a remove of a distance of some kind. It's not real. It's patently not real. It's like the Victorian England of Talons of Wang Jiang. Mm. It's patently not authentic sort of Victorian England populated with all those kinds of characters doing all those kinds of things and everything else. A similar kind of blitz here is, you know, the blitz is very obviously the backdrop. And this kind of... Uh, a degree of authenticity, mm. and then there's also a degree of Stephen Moffaticity on the top of it <laughs> that kind of puts it in the same universe as things like City of Death. Mm. That should yeah, have been your think... bingo word, JR. Every time JR says Moffaticity. <laughs> <laughs> I've coined it now. And they, well, and they I... get away with so much, don't they? Sorry. Um... No, there's just so much to say, but I could be there for flipping days, but I'm not going to be. Uh, one quick thing about that nano genes is that um, it's a bit Star Trek-y, isn't it? I, I actually mm, got yeah. that. I thought I thought it was quite logical. I know you were saying, JR, there's a whole load of nonsense. Logical. But, 
but he he completely sold it to me. I thought it was a logical answer, and it all made sense. But what had happened if the nanogenes had got it wrong and then put the gas mask on her? Well, that'd be the end of the universe. What a useless, well, what, what a useless bit uh, of medical. What, what would have happened? Sorry, to sorry, stop talking good. and let me. <laughs> what would have happened? Go on. What would have happened if there had been a cat? A distressed cat that was also affected <laughs> by the bombs, and the nanogenes had turned everybody oh into my distressed God, survival. Cats. Oh no! And then oh. we could have had, a, yeah, we could have had another animal-based alien from <laughs> Russell T. Davis. Yeah, but it'd be creepy. That I reckon we should write that. Sounds a great idea. Yeah, but I tell uh, you what, the the nanogenes thing allows for a beautiful climax to the mm. story when the the doctor says, "Just trust to the nanogenes to understand." that actually we're supposed to be like the mother, not like the child. And when mm. they do, that is... Oh, do you want to say it again, Doc? Gl- Did you? I can't remember what the word was. Um, glorious. Did you well up? Were oh, you crying? I, I, I cried. I cried um, when um, the doctor said, um, "It's there's, there's nothing nice about being the only child left out in the house. I called, you know. And Nancy says, oh, I suppose you mm. know, would you? He says, yes, I do, actually. Oh, my God, I was crying at that. I was crying when he said to her. Um, I, 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 the little speech about, you know, a, a mouse in front of a lion, I thought was a little, oh, yeah. you know, meant to be. like Murray Goldish, and it's a bit obviously pulling levers, although I, I, I liked it. But when he says after that to her, go on, then. Do what you have to do, save the world. Oh, I cried at mm. that. Um, the bit where he, uh, the uh, Nancy saved the day. The doctor goes over and said, "Give me this, what this one day," and takes off yeah. little boy's mask. I cried at that. Uh, oh, <laughs> I cried a lot of it. But they, oh, they got away with so much, didn't they? That you're you're so engrossed in this. You, no, I don't think anyone, even the worst sort of person. During Richard, um, oh, what's his name? Richard. Um, Don't believe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yes. thought was thinking. Go on, Wilson. go on. Yeah, Richard was Richard thinking. Wilson. Oh, go on. Say, yeah, I can't believe it. That was that was a beautiful <laughs> scene. I don't know. Someone just did. Um, how Sorry. did? They, how did they get away? All these all that they were getting during this series of people whining online about saying, oh, it's disgraceful, you know, forcing my children to into to you know try ask questions about um men holding hands with each other oh isn't it awful really? and then you get okay. a single mother did anyone did anyone foresee that by the way before it was revealed no I single mother save no no, no one not at the heart of this i can't believe the daily, the daily a... mail wasn't having, having headlines about that oh <laughs> yeah 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 utterly, I know, it was... utterly glorious yeah, it's it's it is Stephen Moffat. I mean, he does this all the time. I was talking about it. You know, I mentioned earlier that I'd listened to an old podcast. Mm. I was talking about it on there as well. Funnily enough, he does this all the time. He makes the answer so obvious you don't even think yeah. to look in the place he's hidden it. Mm. The stories are like gobstoppers, aren't they? There there are layers of of different things. You know, you've mm. initially you've got that. The, the the pod that they're following down to the planet so that's one layer then all of a sudden you realize in the blitz that's another layer then within the blitz there's all of a sudden there's the you know personal stories getting right down yeah to the and small. then right at the heart of it is a story about a mother and a, a and child yeah 
something that occurred and, to me only about uh, a few months ago is where I saw, you know, when they're uh, she's hanging to the barrage balloon and the, the Luftwaffe is coming towards her and you can see London below her on fire. You think, actually, that's not quite... It doesn't no, look yeah. like, it, it's about the sort of level of convincingness of when the department <laughs> store blows up in in, yeah, in rows. Yeah. But mm. <clears throat> I was thinking, why why don't I care? But I think I think this story is quite like in 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 a way a graphic novel. That's yes. almost like the 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 yes the visuals of a graphic uh, yeah. novel, that isn't it? Yes, is exactly yeah. was I? yeah exactly definitely. I was thinking that. Um, the, and the of course, CGI this is directed is, by who was it directed by? James Hawes, mm. who goes on and sadly his next three episodes are the ones mm. in the three episode block for series two, where he was rushed off his feet and didn't do a very good job with them, because he's a great director and he's done some brilliant jobs on other things that I've seen, but sadly his Doctor Who career consists of one great story and three underperforming stories in terms of the direction. Mm. But you can't blame him for that. But yeah, the direction is astonishing. Everything marries together in this story, doesn't it? It does. And it's got... Sorry, I've just got to get in there before somebody else says it really, is that it's got one of the best resolutions ever to a cliffhanger. Oh, yes. You know, I was not... No, I don't think anybody in the country was expecting those words to come out of Christopher Eccleston's mouth. And actually, again, it makes perfect logical sense because he sussed it out before the audience. The Doctor's clever. He's worked it out. And we're all going... Once again, What? what?" You know? (laughs) It's Stephen Moffat hiding in there in absolute plain sight. And then... 10 or 15 minutes later, I said, go to your room, didn't I? This is his room. And again, mm. pulls the rug out from under you with something completely and utterly obvious. It's like the beginning of Robots of Death, where he's, he's doing the uh, which box is larger thing, and you think, oh, that's silly. And you stop and think, oh, actually, that's perfectly logical in a way. <laughs> and that's, in, in a sense, that's Doctor Who all over, isn't it? Mm, mm. Right, anyway... We've been going on for a long time, and I've got other things to get off and do, so I'm going to have to call it a day. Can I at this just point. say a couple, just yeah. a couple of words about the season as a whole? I was just going to say, let's do a quick roundup. So go on. I thought it was an. I still feel happy about it. I feel it was an utterly glorious experience for me. You know, you were saying about all the the countdowns in the final week on TV. Mm. Um, the thing at the just before Rose, it counted down to. Um, you know, he's back and it's about time. And it seemed as if everyone in the country was joining in. There weren't, yeah. there weren't that many bitchy reviews in uh, newspapers. Uh, I, I, I can't care what, fan, what fans say about stuff. It was utterly fantastic. And the, and the bit about plotting at the end is all explained by the fact that the, actually the Bad Wolf stuff is not the series arc. The series arc is the emotional character arc for the arc for the doctor as he progresses mm. from this state of almost being a post traumatic stress disorder in Rose to his, his redemption in part of the ways where he says coward any day. And and it's mm. and it's not just the emotional progression, which you, you said to watch, oh well that's that's interesting, isn't that well written? It actually is so well written it grabs you by the heart and drags you along. This is why at various stages along it we're all really macho guys like us. We're crying our eyes out. <laughs> You're my daddy. That's Everybody true. lives. Um, and then the yeah. that emotional vinegar stroke 
of I wanted you saved, my doctor. Uh, and it's all to do, and I've, I've said this so many times that I don't care, I'll keep saying it, a doctor has to be vulnerable. And not vulnerable in the sense that uh, Peter Davison will get rid of his sonic screwdriver, then then he's not got an easy, you know, deus ex thingy. He's got to be emotionally vulnerable. And children have to, children, in my opinion, have to want to be more interested in the, the Doctor being safe than the universe being safe. He's yeah, not yeah, a godlike yeah, superhero. Yeah, yeah. He's, 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 a, he's a wonderful guy. You'd love him to be your friend. But because of certain things, I think even as powerful as a, a, a performance as Tom gives, I think he's vulnerable in that. Vulnerable in that because a, it's, a, it's all coming out of a very dark um, and, and moody uh, performance, I think, mm. that. And I think it's, absolute, it's the epitome of that with Eccleston, because he really is vulnerable. He's just lost mm. all his people. And the st- stuff at the end of End of the World, where he says, I'm left travelling alone because there's no one left. And she says, there's me. I was stopping again. <laughs> um, that is the role of the companion. It's not to act as our window into the show. It's to it's to act as someone who will look after the doctor. So someone who'd be willing to jump in a bullet for him, in front of a bullet for him, or tell him where his shoes when his shoes need mending. Which I think that's the mistake they made in the in the eighties. They had they had companions mm. who were too busy sulking or bitching yeah. to worry about that sort of things. And it's it's for me season was the perfect self contained season. Bookended by Eccleston's arrival and departure, bookended by the, his journey of redemption, and I think it's only matched in the modern series by Matt Smith's first season, which I think I think significantly is also Moffat's first season, and I think that he and Russell T Davis have been planning what they wanted, imagining what they wanted to do with Doctor Who all their lives, mm. and they made two. Perfect series, and that's that. I wow. yeah, infinite. They were taking infinite pains to get things right. I will say that I think for Russell T. Day, I'm not necessarily in agreement about Stephen Moffat, but you know that's the topic for another time. Russell T. Davis, he nailed everything in this first series, and I don't think the other three were really a shadow on this. As much as I enjoyed them, this. It told a self-contained story and hit that story out of the park. But Lee and Simon, have you got anything you can add to what the dogs just said? Yeah. Um, I wasn't well, actually asking you to. I was getting you to say no so that I can get on, <laughs> make a cup of tea, and go to bed. I can be very brief. I can be very brief. Okay. brief I'll show. Um, I know. <laughs> it's been glorious. Well, I did wonder why we were here, but anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> JR's uh, fault. If you hadn't said to me, oh, we're planning on making it just about an hour, I wouldn't yeah. have made it so stretch out. <laughs> um, it <clears throat> is... Oh, God, now I've gone blank of what I was going to say. It Well, what I will say is that next month we're watching Series 8 of Doctor Who. And if this series hadn't been as successful as it was in doing the job that it was obviously designed to do, Absolutely. I don't know whether we would be. I don't know whether we would be. And it was, as as the docs just said, it was a work of love and it was a work of uh, precision and of a lot of thought. And it was just, it, it just, it brought everything in a nice, nice kind of slope so you can pick up speed to carry on and keep going and keep the momentum going. And now we're here, we are at Series 8. So, you know, 
there's that's that's testament to this first series i think because i think it established things to to the extent and put roots far, far enough down into the bbc earth to have it still here seven eight no nine years later nine years later bloody hell yeah well said um this this whole season uh to me is holds a bit of an emotional thing in, in a good way is i think it's one of the you know, you remember the best years of your lives, don't you? This is one of the best years of my life because I was so excited about this coming back. But yet, even when JR told me about a year or two beforehand it was coming back, I still didn't believe him. <laughs> um, I didn't believe anybody. I didn't believe it was going to happen. It's like having your house and having the key in the, the key in your hand. You think I'm not, I haven't got that house until I've got the key in the door and I'm in the house. It was the same thing. I couldn't believe it until it was on telly that it was actually going to be happening. And when it did. Of course, I was sitting there with my son thinking, oh, my, my son is five years old. He's got Doctor ahead of him. If it's successful, I'm really happy about this. So every week we made it a family thing to sit down. Um, it, I had to drag my wife down and glue her to the settee. But eventually, three or four weeks in, we all sat and watched that whole season together as a family. I thought, oh, my God, Russell, you've got it. You've got us back sitting on the seat as a family watching TV on on a Saturday night like I used to in the 70s with my mum and dad. Um, and so for me, it was it was a perfectly contained season. It was brilliant. It was emotional. It was funny. It threw everything at the screen you could possibly think of. Um, and he pulled it out of the bag. Yeah, uh, we were talking about it the other day. There were some weak moments. Long game was a little bit weak here and there. But even that had its uh, had its moments. And um, just the, the whole thing was, was fantastic, along with stupid names coming out like Jack of the Holy Hedrogastic, Maxim Rodenfoe, all these things that kids were saying in the playground and adults were laughing about on, you know, talking about it on the bus behind me, for goodness so, sake. So it's not just a success in Doctor Who in its own right, it's a success in British television. British television, yeah. So it made me feel really, really proud. And I, I knew, I turned around to the naysayers basically and went, I told you it was good. I told you it was good. For years and years I've been telling people how good it is. Never believe me. And there they uh, there they all are, just really enjoying it. And they're still fans now, these people that I've been trying to convince. So there we go. Fantastic. Brilliant. And I actually dreamt that I uh, I fell in love with Russell T. Davis, and I'm not going to go any further than that. You dreamt Ooh. an emotion. Because the funny thing is, <laughs> we don't tend to dream emotions. If you think you've dreamt an emotion, that means you're actually suffering from the emotion, oh. Lee. Oh, gosh. Dear Russell. Um, <laughs> Doc. Doc. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I take it. I take it the photographs will be in the post first thing tomorrow. Yes, yeah? thank you very much for inviting me on. Dis- onto what is, despite my gentle teasing earlier, along with a couple of others, I think remains a gold standard for Doctor Who podcasting. Oh. And the cheque will be in the post as well, Doc. I assume to me. And <laughs> one which we hope we can only try to emulate on the Diddly Dumb podcast. Which is super. Which can be found at diddlydumbpodcast.wordpress.com And if anybody here hasn't sampled it yet, it's wonderful. Just go and have a listen. As has been, it's been described on Gallifrey Base as it's like the Blue Box podcast, only without the central clever one and with celebrity deaths. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, I I think that's that, lovely no. calling Lee the central clever one, personally. How I like your graphics, though, I have to say. Oh, that's all to do with the Rev. Okay. Right, then. Um, well, yeah, in that case, well, I was JR. I was Lee. 
Go on, bro. I was Doc. Doc, even. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I still can't work out who you are. Should we do that again? Go on, then. <laughs> what do you mean, should we do it again? We're recording. Simon, just say goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Look at his face. Okay. All right. <sighs> and we will speak again soon. Hey, What are you talking about?